We're so glad you're here, and ladies and gentlemen, I have exciting news. We are in the home stretch of Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. Open your Bibles, please, to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. It's taken most of the year, but we have reached the conclusion of his letter, and Paul here is going to finally take the gloves off, open his heart wide open, and reason with this church His preaching had started it, but they had turned against him. He fears, as he's going to tell you in this letter, that he is, they are wandering away not only from a relationship and a friendship with Paul, but away from Jesus himself. And that's why he's going to get so heated, so vulnerable, so transparent, and believe it or not, you're going to see it in a moment, he's actually going to get really, really sarcastic. And that does not necessarily give license for you and me to be sarcastic. You'll see why Paul was sarcastic in just a moment. But first, I have a question for you. If I say the word, and this is only something that could happen, this is a question that would only make sense in these last few years that we've been living through. I'm going to say a word, and I'm going to ask you if the association is negative or positive. The word is viral. Is that good or bad for you? Did you hear the the kind of mutter? Did you hear a, a mutter? There was a little disagreement there because, yes, of course, a virus is a negative thing. There are viruses in the world that are quickly and terribly and brutally fatal, but It seems if you engage in social media and if you go on YouTube, half the world is trying to, here's a new phrase, go viral. We don't like viruses, but if we ourselves could go viral in doing the thing that we do, for most people that means at least fame, if not money. A few weeks ago, a factory worker in Virginia picked up his guitar, sang from the toes, and he now has the number one song in America. If you don't know who that is, I'm not going to tell you. It's not important. Please don't look for it while I'm trying to teach the Bible to you. (laughs) But you probably do know who it is. I heard the wave of recognition go through the crowd, and he's not the first. Ten or 15 years ago, a Canadian child named Justin Bieber picked up his guitar in front of a camera, and I'm pretty sure you've heard of Justin Bieber, yes? Cajillionaire just because something in his music and his expression and the way he played and the way he sang really connected with people. And now he's one of the most famous people that's ever lived. Why am I telling you all this? Because I'm going to read you somebody else's mail about an issue that is literally 2,000 years old because this was written to a first century church in the first century, just a few decades after the death and resurrection of Jesus. But it couldn't be any more timely because though Paul's preaching started the Corinthian church and gave them the knowledge, the certain knowledge of who Jesus was, other teachers had arrived in Corinth that Paul's going to sarcastically call the super apostles. And they had started a line of reasoning against Paul, pointing to his poverty, pointing to the physical scars on his body, pointing to the fact that he was continually in prison or doing his best legally and by running away to stay out of prison and saying, you're listening to him? 
Do you realize how outdated his message is? Do you realize how much he gets wrong? Do you know that the reason Paul suffers the way that he does is because he's a false teacher and God has removed his blessing for him? And in the first century, false teaching spread by necessity a lot slower than it can spread in our day. A man had to go and preach in person. People had to talk about the teaching or the sermon. The, the message had to travel through letters delivered at the speediest by horseback. Today, just as it is with a song or a jingle, somebody can pick up a Bible, misinterpret it, misread it, preach it poorly, and something in the cultural moment grabs a hold of a two-minute video or an hour-long fake documentary, and the faith of Christians can be shaken and rattled just as it was in the first century. Because of the internet, whether you engage in social media or not, you and I are continually swimming in the information and misinformation that the internet produces and spreads, and you need to be able to answer this question. In a self-promoting culture, how can we know if a Christian worker is worth listening to? That's a relevant question, and it's a relevant question, frankly, right now. Because I have the audacity of standing up here with a microphone wrapped around my giant head and a Bible in my hand, and I purport to open the Bible with you, read it in front of you, read it along with you, and tell you what it means. And the question should always be, why should you listen to me? Why not the guy on YouTube? Why not the guy, and candidly, I'll tell you more about that in a moment, former friends who say that I and people like me who have believed this message for 2,000 continuous years, we've got it all wrong and they've got a new angle. Let's find out, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. The sarcasm starts early. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. Those of you who are parents, have you ever talked to your kids like that? Hey, just, just indulge me for a second. Can you listen to me for just a minute? Give your old... I've said this, not super proud of it. Give your old man half a chance. Give me a moment of time to persuade you that maybe I would be right. And then I ask apologies for being that sarcastic and that harsh. Anybody else do this, or is this just a personal uh, Pastor Bruce Garner confessional time? Yes? As you're going to see, the sarcasm, the heat, the vulnerability, the anger, the concern, the worry, it's all in this letter. In Paul's case, maybe not mine, but in Paul's case, is coming straight out of a heart that loves these people. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. That's one of the stranger verses in the New Testament. If that didn't make you sit up and say, what in the world is he talking about? Read it again. It's a really heavy word image, and it exists for a good reason. If you were part of a Christian marriage ceremony, there's a decent chance that Ephesians chapter 5 was read in your marriage ceremony or familiar with it. 
where he explains to husbands that they are to love their wives the way Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, and that the loving response of the people Jesus saved is to, in return, respect him, cleave to him. Well, Paul is saying, using one of the heaviest and most sacred word pictures in all of the Bible, I'm not sure what's happening, church. Bear with me for a second. I'm going to act a little crazy. You may think me a fool, but I'm, I'm very, very jealous. God is stirring up jealousy for me because I thought I had you safely to Jesus. I thought you were engaged to Jesus. In other words, I thought you as a church had begun a lifelong, loyal, covenant relationship with Jesus, and now I worry, the backdrop is, I worry that you've been cheating. And that's not the only word picture that the New Testament uses for the love that Christ has for us. They're all important, but it is one of the strongest that Jesus loves us to the point of sacrificing himself, that like every husband would aspire to be and thinks that he already is, in a moment of crisis, a husband will step forward and, of course, die for his wife, of course, die for his children, save his family. He will die so that they may live. That's the covenant love that Jesus has for the people he saves. And Paul says, I thought I had you betrothed, engaged. I thought I had you promised off to him. Now I worry that you've been seeing someone else. I worry that you've been unfaithful. Verse 3, I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Whatever Paul's about to tell them, it's massively important because he's pulling out all the stops. He's opened up his own Bible, the Hebrew Scriptures. He's opened the Bible here to what you and I know as Genesis chapter 3, and he's reminding them of the first deception that took people away from God in the first place. The word picture which would have been familiar to them if they had been at all familiar with the Hebrew Scriptures, if they had ever themselves attended synagogue, was that I'm afraid that the Limey, lying serpent has deceived you as well. The reason I'm troubled about you is I'm afraid your relationship with Jesus is being broken up by your deception and led you, verse 3, led you astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Now, those three verses are perhaps the heaviest and the hardest to understand in the entire chapter, but they are the answer to the first filter, the first criteria, the first standard for someone, whether they're a vocational minister like me or some guy on YouTube or simply your Christian friend who's got a new angle, found a new church, read a new book, watched a video. Here's the first and indispensable standard. If someone actually is a Christian worth listening to, number one, they are working for you to be devoted to the real Christ. The point of their teaching, the point of their counsel, the point of their listening and their praying is they are doing what they can as people who are following Jesus themselves to keep you in step behind Christ. Jesus has invited you to come and follow after him, bearing your own cross every day and following in his footsteps someone who represents him, who has the audacity to teach and explain what he says, all of their efforts 
hold me to this standard. All of my efforts are to keep you in step with Jesus. And the trouble is, there are many distractions when you're following Jesus, and there are many counterfeits inviting you to follow them instead. And the internet has put them all on display, spawned many more of them, and continually runs the danger of making someone who is not actually speaking about the true historical Jesus, drawing people who once thought they knew Christ after Him. Look very carefully at what Paul says he's working for at the end of verse 3. He says, I'm concerned that your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. That's the Christian life, church, in one phrase, a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And let's just pause there for a moment. Morbid introspection is terrible. I routinely counsel people who can't seem to get out of their own heads and are continually tortured by thoughts about whether they're doing very, very minute and normal things, whether those things are right and wrong. I understand that. My mind can race in the same direction. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a relational introspection. If you're really a Christian, Paul says the point of all the sacrifices he's made, the point of the volleys of letters and people that have been going back and forth between Paul and Corinth, all was intended for this. He wants them to have a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So without getting morbidly introspective, ask yourself this question. Since Jesus is a real person, he's not an idea, he's not a concept, he's not a meme, He's not some construct. He's a real person who was born at a specific time within a specific family, who lived a particular life that can be documented in history, who died the brutal death we just read about and remembered in communion, and who rose as promised personally and in writing 700 and 1,000 years before he was even born. He's a real person. And he did all of that to really save people. And He has invited you into the most glorious friendship and relationship you could ever enjoy in your life at all with anyone. And here's the question, not with morbid introspection, but with sincere, personal, relational honesty. Are you sincerely and purely devoted to Christ? Is it real to you? When you sin and stumble and struggle and stray, and everyone does because that is the nature of relationships with sinful people. In your relationship with Jesus, He alone is perfect. He's faithful and constant, but you're not. That's why He's faithful and constant, because we're not. But would you characterize your following after Jesus as sincere? Would you say that your devotion to Him is pure? That's a much bigger thing. Because that has to be a daily decision and a daily commitment, as Jesus himself said. But that's the nature of the Christian life. That's the Christian life in a single phrase. It is a sincere and pure personal devotion. Not to an institution, not to an idea, not to a set of values, but to a person, to Jesus Christ. And if today you've come, as I often have, to church as a hypocrite, 
and you realize that your weekend life and your Sunday morning worship don't match, I have good news. Jesus already knows all about it. And that's what took him to the cross. And you can be dead level honest with him, confess that to him, ask his forgiveness, and unlike many friends and family members, Jesus has this beautiful trait. If you sincerely ask his forgiveness, guess what? He'll always grant it. And he'll welcome you back, and you'll get back to the sincere and the pure devotion that you are intended to have, and that someone who's actually working for Christ and not for themselves is making an effort to give you, to really get you to Christ and to keep you in step with him. Then Paul, and this is the longest and the most vulnerable and personal part of the letter, Paul's going to start talking about himself, and he really doesn't want to. Look with me in verse 4. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus, then the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Can you hear the hurt? If anybody comes with a different Jesus... Somebody comes talking to you about another spirit rather than the Holy Spirit. Somebody comes to you with a different message, a different set of news from the one you accepted. Paul says, you put up with it. You'll listen to anybody. Almost, Paul almost sounds like a concerned father telling his three-year-old to not listen to strangers. Don't listen. Be careful. Not everybody's who they claim to be. And here starts the sarcasm. Verse 5, indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. As far as we know, Paul made that term up. Who are the super apostles? He's going to describe them to you, but if you've been following the letter in all these months and nobody, not even me, can keep everything that Paul has said in his mind all at once, so let, in this letter all at once, so let me remind you, the super apostles have a very clever angle in their criticism of Paul. They point to his poverty, they point to his scars, they point to his imprisonment and his rejection everywhere he preaches Jesus as proof that Paul's an imposter. Say, so if you'll notice, Paul's poor, we're rich. Paul's always getting thrown into prison and beaten within half an inch of his life. Nobody ever criticizes us. We're well-received, we're on the circuit, we've got a brochure, we get invited places, we don't even need an agent, people invite us, all of their own, calls are coming in all the time, everybody wants to hear from us. That's the claim of the super apostles, and now Paul really doesn't want to, I'm just going to read this to you, he's going to work his way through their criticisms and answer them one by one. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things. I want you to look very carefully at verse 6 because what Paul says here is very humble. One of the main criticisms that the super apostles had of Paul was that he was not a very good speaker. That he could write a great letter. But he shows up in person pretty shaky, pretty weak, pretty beat up, needed help getting up on the stage. And I hate to say it because I don't want to be catty, but folks, if you notice, we're good looking and he's ugly. I don't know if you've noticed. 
If Paul were here in person, if you didn't know who he was, you wouldn't think much of him. He was a scarred, beaten mess. Reading between the lines of letters he wrote, he must have been almost completely blind. In our culture, he almost certainly would have been considered legally blind. He needed help with all kinds of things, including the fact that Paul, as was the custom but apparently necessary for him because of his disabilities, Paul spoke his letters and somebody else wrote them down. In one letter, he says at the end to verify that it's really him sending the letter, look, I'm signing my name, look how large the letters are. Why was that? Because he had suffered so much, and the first thing he faces squarely is in verse 6, I'm not a very good speaker. I want you to look carefully at verse 6 and study it with me. Does it seem to you that Paul agrees with them or defends his own oratory? You see that? He agrees with them. The greatest apostle of all said, they say I'm not a very good preacher, and guess what? They've got a point. But, he says, verse 6, even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in, what's it say? Knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things. Here's the second sign of a real Christian who's worth listening to in vocational ministry or not, but especially if someone has the audacity to preach, second sign they have genuinely Christian credentials, which they don't like to discuss. Notice, the credentials are Christian, not educational, not social, not economic. They have nothing to do with personal attainment. The credentials are such that the person speaking on behalf of Jesus and explaining Jesus reminds people of Jesus, and here's the first thing that Paul is dealing with in honestly admitting that his preaching could be better. His first thing he says is, even if I'm unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. In other words, someone who actually is worth listening to really knows God. They may not be able to present it and preach it as well as others, but they have a deep, lasting, real, vibrant, personal relationship with the Jesus who is actually there. In John 17, verse 3, Jesus said, This is eternal life, that they may know you and Jesus, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. In other words, no one is worth listening to, including me, especially me, since this is where you attend church, unless it is evident that they're speaking, they're ministering, their visitation, their prayer, whatever they do in Jesus' name reflects and reveals a real relationship with Him. And my question to you this morning is very simple and very pointed. You may know a great deal of facts about God. Do you actually know God? Because you can know a lot of things about a person without actually knowing the person. Is the name George Washington familiar to you? Every American living knows things about him. Nobody actually knows George Washington. It's impossible. 
In the same way, because you can open the Bible and because you can read books and because you can watch videos, we seem to have spawned a generation of Christians who know many things about God but who do not reveal in their actual personal lives that they know God Himself. That's the first and important sign in Christian credentials. They actually know God. And then Paul deals, I mean, he's touching all the bases. He's hitting all the hot buttons. He's going to talk about money. Look in verse 7. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preach God's gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. Remember the Macedonians? They're people who live to the north of the Corinthians, and there's one distinguishing factor about their economic situation. Do you remember what it was? They're poor. Paul, in other words, said, the reason I did not receive, expect, and I refused financial support from you is because your poor brothers and sisters from the north sent me to you. When I had a need, I didn't mention it to you. They took care of me. Verse 9. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way as the truth of Christ is in me. This boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. In other words, while I'm with you, I'm going to keep telling you the truth. And why? Because I do not love you. God knows I do. And, I am, and what I am doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms we do. This next part's important and very controversial, and it's something I've had to talk to people usually visiting our church for the first time several times in the 18 years I've been here with you. Really important so that you can avoid a ditch of false teaching because every truth of God has a ditch on both sides of the road and you want to stay out of both. You want to walk down the path of truth, not leap from one ditch to another. And the ditch regarding money is this. Christian workers, here's their second credential, may receive money, but they never should be motivated by it. One of the ditches is, and it's very, very popular, is that the sign that God's blessing is on a minister or a church is if that minister in particular is wealthy and has a great lifestyle. Have you seen this in media? There's even a phrase for that tribe of churches. We call them health and wealth. And some preachers literally, I mean, it's, it's so shocking, it's nauseating to me. Some pastors specifically boast of incredibly lavish lifestyles. I'm talking private jet kind of money. And they don't hide it. It's actually the proof that they're the real deal. And the invitation is this. I'm really in step with Jesus. That's why I'm rich. If you're not rich, listen to me, you can be rich too. And if you go to the parking lot of those conferences and those events, you're going to notice that the people who are doing the preaching arrive in very nice cars, perhaps driven by professionals, and there's a bunch of dented Hondas in the parking lot. It just doesn't work. So the pendulum swing to the other side is 
No Christian should support any other Christian. Just preach Christ. Don't receive money. Don't receive financial support. Churches that are receiving money should not be done with all that. Give it entirely to the poor. And don't support anybody. Everybody get a job and just work a job and preach Jesus with the time that you have left. That's the overreaction. That's the ditch on the other side of the road. Listen to Paul. Help us walk down the center of the road. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 13 he had dealt with this earlier. They shouldn't, he shouldn't have had to get into this, but here's what he said. Do you not know that those who were employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve in the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? This is Paul reflecting back on the Old Testament priesthood. Now he's going to bring it forward, bring the idea, the principle into his present day. Read verse 14 with me. It says, in the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Do you ever notice that in the Bible? If you read the gospels, from the very beginning, both Jesus and his followers greatly received modest financial support so that they could spend their entire day preaching the good news of the kingdom. Notice it says in verse 14, the Lord, in other words, Jesus commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. This chapter we just read in Corinthians tells you that Paul did too, just not from that church. If you want to put it in local terms, Paul had gone to a wealthy city. Paul had gone to Newport Coast to preach to people who had wealth and means and power, and he had been sent there by one of the poorest neighborhoods in the country. And what did the rich people do in return? They said, ah, Paul, your poverty? Proof that God doesn't endorse you. Proof that you're not real. Now, what about the preachers who have made themselves famous on an Instagram account called Preachers and Sneakers? If you're not familiar with that, and again, that's something I don't want you to look up while I'm talking with the open Bible. Some pastors have become so affluent in their lifestyle, that somebody has dedicated an entire Instagram account to their footwear that they wear while they're preaching. I'm talking really, really expensive, highly collectible Nikes and the like, brands that I didn't even know existed because I don't buy $3,000 pairs of shoes. That's one way of presenting the gospel. It's wrong because of what Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 3. This is in the character list. This is in the standards for preachers. 1 Timothy 3, verse 3 said this. Read this with me as well, please. It says, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. You see that? That means that Christian workers can earn money and enjoy money. They just can't love it. And that's so basic that guess what? No Christian should love it. Paul also wrote about that. He said that the love of money is, people usually misquote that. They say money is the root of all evil. No, it's not. It is the love of money that is the root of all evil. What's the problem? Money's very, very lovable. I don't know if you've noticed. Money draws you in. Money draws you to serve it and to love it and to trust it and to pursue it at the cost of your family, at the cost of your marriage, at the cost of your children's trust and love, at the cost of your own health. Money invites you to be its servant. And money makes a wonderful servant but a terrible master. 
And Paul says the people who are preaching Jesus to you, check them. If their lifestyle is ostentatious and they live high on the hog as proof that Jesus really loves them and blesses them, they're false teachers. But they are and they can receive your financial support. Read verse 13 with me now. Such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ, and no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Here's an ominous sentence, their end will correspond to their deeds. People who preach for Christ are also truthful whereas false teachers are deceptive. Look very carefully at verse 13. It's one of the heaviest little paragraphs in the whole letter. Some people who speak for Jesus are false apostles. They're deceitful workmen. They disguise themselves as apostles of Christ. And it's no wonder, Paul says, even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. No surprise if his servants disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. In other words, people who speak for Jesus will, as Jesus did, will speak to you the truth. They will not allow you from being deceived and drawn away from your first love and your first faith. And please hear me on this. I don't want to get too personal. I'm certainly not going to name names because names change, but the principles and the truths never do. I'm glad we're in 2 Corinthians and spending all of this time, these final chapters, talking about genuine Christian ministry that actually reflects the character of Christ because as a pastor or a friend, whether it's within our congregation or people in my own family or calls I get from pastors around the country almost every week without exception, I'm having to counsel somebody who has been drawn in because of something they saw on YouTube. It happened in our church several years ago. I lost dear friendships who cut me off completely when I dared challenge some of the teaching that they seemed to be involved in. But then I saw the video. Someone inadvertently sent me one of the videos that they had been studying together, and I didn't agree, but I did understand it. It was so incredibly well-made. Someone who preaches for Jesus and represents Jesus and explains the person of Christ to others will be truthful himself or herself because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. People who speak about him, by definition, can't be deceptive. They can't disguise themselves. They have to be sincere, open-hearted people, not perfect, but sincere and open and quick to repent and quick to receive correction because they are speaking on behalf of the one who is truth. Verse 16, I repeat, let no one think me foolish, but even if you do, accept me as a fool so that I too may boast a little. What I am saying with this boastful confidence, I say not as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. For you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourselves. For you bear with it if someone makes slaves of you, or devours you, or takes advantage of you, or puts on airs, or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. Are you picking up on the sarcasm? Whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I am speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast of that. Paul doesn't want to, but here are his credentials. 
Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Now, what Paul's going to do here is extremely cultural, and I need you to understand the backdrop so that it makes sense to you. The idea which we find so woven into our culture that humility is a virtue was not part of the Greco-Roman world. Humility in the Greco-Roman world was thought a contemptible slave trait. If you were humble, you were a loser. In our culture, Jesus has so transformed our culture that even if people don't give him the credit, proud people in our culture are despised. And we say things like, I'm not denying he can get the job done, but man, is he proud of himself. Yuck. Jesus did that. And what was common in the ancient world is for wealthy, important people to roll out their own credentials. Julius Caesar famously wrote a monumental inscription giving a long eulogy. Can you guess the subject? Himself. And he began to give his career from the age of 19, and he sang his own praises. Here's Paul's resume. Listen. Verse 23. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. That's a Jewish judicial beating. The law said that you can only strike a man forty times, so they were safe and gave him thirty-nine beatings because the law said if the, if the man conducting the beating went too far, he would be beaten himself. He said, let's be safe. Let's not hit him 40. Let's just count. Let's just hit him 39 times. Paul got that treatment five times. If you do the math, that's 195 wounds across his back. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. That time they left him for dead, but he somehow survived. Three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift at sea in frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, dangers from false brothers. You want to hear my resume? Here it is. In toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches." Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hand. Why these credentials? Because this, take this to heart. Use this in evaluating your pastors. Use this in evaluating the people you hear on the internet. Letter D, they're willing to suffer for Christ and other Christians. Because, friends, the proof of being willing to suffer for Jesus is actually suffering for others. It's easy to profess that if the chips were down, you would do anything for Christ. It's much harder to love the needy brother or sister beside you. 
People who are willing to sacrifice for Jesus always and only show it by their sacrifices they make, not in the name of Jesus, but the sacrifices they actually practically make for other people. Here's how Paul explained it in 2 Corinthians 12, 15. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. And finally, they never get over meeting Jesus. Did you notice how strange the ending of the chapter was? Paul's talking about being let down out of a basket from the city of Damascus. What a weird thing to say. What's that about? Well, you may remember that Paul was on his way to Damascus to persecute Christians when he met the risen Christ. And he was quite literally knocked off his high horse. Jesus blinded him and talked to him. And Paul asked the most important question of his life from the dirt on the Damascus road, who are you, Lord? And he got the answer. I'm Jesus who you're persecuting. And that changed everything for Paul. And a man who was humbled and blinded walked into the city of Damascus. Jesus gave him his sight back, and Paul started preaching. You can read about this in Acts chapter 9. Paul started preaching so fervently and so passionately that the entire city was in an uproar. And the entire city conspired to kill him. And the only way he got out alive is some people put this exalted preacher in a basket and lowered him down from the city wall to run off into the night. Imagine what Jesus can do to a man who is on a warlike mount on his way to kill people and ends up like a little kid being put in a basket and lowered to safety so that he can escape. Paul never got over that. And my question to you is this, Christ died and rose for you. Are you kind of used to that good news? Are you so familiar with the idea that Jesus, the Son of God, bore your sins and died on the cross and then took his life back so that he could give it to you that you're just kind of, yeah, okay, what else you got? May I suggest to you that if you've outgrown the gospel, you've outgrown Jesus? If the good news of the death and the resurrection of Jesus on your behalf no longer thrills you, you've grown past not only Paul but past your Savior? And that's the final thing. This long and embarrassing litany that Paul calls his credentials takes us to the third and final characteristic. People who are worth listening to are willing to be fools for Christ so that other people may know him. And my question to you, to make it really practical and bring it into our own day, Pastor Rob was telling you about Friend Day. Are you willing to be thought a fool to invite somebody to church? Are you willing to open up your mouth and talk about your faith and talk about your Savior, knowing that in this highly secularized culture, someone might think you're crazy? People who are worth listening to when they speak about Jesus are only worth listening to if they remind you of Him while they bring you closer to Him. If we are to be thought fools, let's make sure that we're thought fools because of what we believe and what we love and what we say about Jesus. Let's remind people of Christ while we're bold to speak of Him. That's what it will look like for us to be a genuine, real Christian church. Let's pray together.